didn't start the fire It was always burning since the world's been turning We didn't start the fire It was always burning And it's the end of the world as we know it Welcome to This Is How We Die, a podcast about cities, infrastructure, natural disasters, and how you can survive. I'm Megan. And I'm Megan. Hey, Megan. Hi. So, Megan, tell me, how do you think I'm going to die in Seattle? So, I've thought about this a lot. You think about my death a lot? I don't, yeah, actually, yeah, I'll, I'll stand by that statement. Because we have to think about it every week, you see. But, specifically in That's Seattle. <laughs> also, I plot. And I plan. Um, but in this scenario, in which I am not the culprits of your murder, you're there. You're on top of this, like, unreinforced masonry brick building in downtown Seattle. As if I would ever. You're drinking white wine, laughing maniacally as the godforsaken viaduct is being knocked down. But the viaduct wants one last victim. It wants you. And by one last victim, I mean everyone else who is also in that building. And... It goes awry, and it crashes into your building. And you fly through the air, you know, like spiraling. like this a, is like a elaborate comical death. I'm good. Yes, yes. And you scream into the void. I told you this was going to happen. I told you. And then you would literally go out in a, in a burst of flames. That's... It, it, it's very, like, <laughs> dramatic. It's very scenic. It's, it's everything we imagined the viaduct death would be dramatic scenic and i told you so this is like my dream death yes i thought so i wanted to make it perfect for you it's super ironic that my death involves being so very right because so does yours I love that. because i've been thinking about it this week like you know sometimes how would i kill megan but other times <laughs> how might megan just meet her demise in our city like in a natural way yeah in a natural way I have this vision of you Mm -hmm. with the city leaders of Seattle, maybe even the governor, Mm -hmm. and standing on this liquefaction zone, stomping your foot, saying, I hate liquefaction zones, saying, this is just Phil. This isn't real land at all. Just as the sea level rises, just enough to turn that land into quicksand and down you go with it. You know, it's funny. I've always had a fear of quicksand. So this is perfect. (laughs) So So we're vindicated. We're both vindicated in our deaths. We were right all along. So you may have guessed from where we're going to die that today we're talking about Seattle, the city that we live in. So it means we're hitting really close to home because this isn't just like, this is how you'll die. This is literally how we are going to die. This is how we will die. And we think about it all the time, like on our way to work, on our way back from work, whenever people are like, oh, I'm buying a house. And we're like, oh, no, what have you done? I literally have an entire Instagram series called Places I'd Rather Not Be in an Earthquake. (laughs) And it's just photos of places that I go. And the entire time I'm there, I think, God, I hope we don't have the earthquake right now. I feel that way for like half of Seattle. I'm like, I don't want to go to the part of Seattle. And people are like, oh, you just hate traveling. And I'm like, that's it. But really what it is, is I don't want to go to their part of the city because that city is a treacherous swampland of potential death. They really should put that on our tourism signs. Exactly. <laughs> they should run an ad, Seattle, a potential swampland of potential death. Potential death. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so before 
before we, we go on and we talk about Seattle, I just want to put a requiem for the Alaskan Viaduct. As you can see, like everyone in Seattle has this weird nostalgic, like let's have a wake for the Alaskan Viaduct. Oh, like it's our youth. It's it's vanishing Seattle. It's interesting. So when I first moved to the city, I literally needed a glossary of terms to explain Seattle to me. Like I needed yeah. somebody to give yeah. me some of those, like some of that insider knowledge. Um, at this point, I've been here for like 11 years. 11? 10 years. Yeah. Um, so when people ask me if I'm from Seattle, I at this point, I just am like, yeah. But when I first moved here, when people talk about viaduct, I had no idea what they were talking about. Um, and the viaduct that we refer to is um, our highway, our state route 99. It runs through downtown Seattle, and it's this raised double-decker freeway system that is just like a hideous concrete eyesore. When you're under it, it's just like the loudest place you've ever been. Mm -hmm. It cuts off downtown Seattle from our, like, touristy waterfront. And just to me is, like, one, the most hideous piece of infrastructure I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And then added to that is incredibly dangerous. We had the Nisqually earthquake in 2001. And when that happened, the viaduct actually settled some. It had some, like sinking down into the ground and they came through and they like did an assessment of like how did this fare this earthquake and we're like oh this cannot handle another earthquake of this size it can't handle another earthquake period we've got to get rid of it and that was 2001 and <laughs> it's now 2019 and we're finally finally at a point where we're ready to tear it down it's been different for me because I, I had like basically three viaduct moments. I was here only for like 24 hours and I had to fly out. Like I took it like jet lagged like and I, and I was like on this road and I thought and I took it in the middle of the day and it was really pretty. And I was like, oh, the views can't be beat. The, the view, the views are beautiful. And I was like, wow. And then the second time was like a year and a half later after I would moved to L.A. and I was like visiting here for the first time. And um, like I remember like driving in. And I was like, this is the most beautiful city ever because it, it does have like beautiful views. And the third like awakening was like after i'd actually like, done an assessment of the viaduct this is a machete of death that is hovering over the city of seattle at all times it's interesting because the way you're describing it i it's like the first time i realized that the viaduct is like heaven and hell in one yes if you're driving north and you're on the top deck and you're like looking out on a sunny day and it's like the city's on your right and it's like shiny and beautiful and reflecting the sun and the <laughs> elliott bay is on your left and you can see the olympic mountains and you're like there is no better view in seattle and if you're on the bottom deck and it's a pouring rain day in rush hour you're literally sitting in like stopped traffic on the bottom half of a freeway that in an earthquake is going to like crush you water's like pouring down on you from the upper deck between the cracks between the pieces of the bridge and it's just like literally the worst place on earth to be and i just sit there the whole time being like okay i'm gonna be here for another 15 minutes please don't let now be the earthquake because i want to survive oh like i'm gonna go drive on the on the viaduct to say goodbye i'm like see you in hell viaduct but there's a reason why we don't put like plastic bags over kids heads anymore or we don't smoke whenever we're pregnant or things like that is because it's not because it was like old-fashioned and cute and we just like want to change just to be difficult we want to change because those things killed us and you know what also killed us the viaduct 
I'm ready to dance on the grave of the viaduct. In fact, I'm in a run on the grave of the viaduct. They're doing a new, like, tunneled viaduct run um, on the first weekend of February that I'm taking part in, where you run the new tunnel and you're like, this is fancy and new. And then you run on the viaduct as fast as you fucking can to get on out of it. <laughs> yeah. The thing is, like, I was like, you know, part of me wants to do that with you, but part of me is like, as a karmic joke, God should have that earthquake happen right then. Just be like, what now? It'll be just as you and I come onto the viaduct. It'll yeah. be like, the Megans are there. Take them down with we, infrastructure. We've been waiting. They complain way too much. So, clearly we've talked about earthquake a lot already. <laughs> so, we think people have a pretty good sense. Anyone who read that New York Times article from a couple years ago has a very good sense. Seattle's greatest natural disaster risk, not the one that we're most likely to face year to year, but mm-hmm. the one that would take us down the most significantly is an earthquake. And while before we start on the whole earthquake thing, we always like say our worst case scenario that could happen. Like we had to talk to tsunami last time. So we just say the worst case scenario here is we have an earthquake and that it triggers a volcano. That volcano triggers a lahar. <gasps> oh, my God. You're right. It triggers a lahar. And that lahar triggers a seish. Can, can lahars trigger seishes? Or I think the earthquake would trigger the seish and mm. the volcano at the same time, which would then result in lahar and then also just normal, you know, like mudslides. Yeah, all the fun landslides, yeah. lack of power, no clean water that comes post-earthquake. Yeah, so it would just be like apocalypse land. I feel like um, we're either making a really good case for Seattle to have robust emergency management. <laughs> or, or like being like, what's the point? <laughs> or we're like clearly running a campaign to get people to stop moving to this city. <laughs> people are like, but wait, what are the, the earthquake insurance rates? And you're like, well, fun story. So there are three types of earthquakes we talk about for the Seattle area that we're at risk for. We've got those like crustal shallow f- faults, um, those actually run through, like, Seattle, Tacoma. They're really close to the surface. They'd cause, like, a huge amount of damage because they're very close to the surface, and they run right through our downtown area. I mean, they basically—they also follow, like, the I-90 route, which is, like, like freakishly well. It's like they, they, they built the highway on the fault line. Yeah. Then we have really deep quakes, and that's the one when we talk about, like, 2001's Nisqually quake, that um, that's what we experienced was a deep earthquake. And in, in the coast, the coastal crest. In the coastal crest. And that one, um, you know, Nisqually was a fairly big quake. It was somewhere between 6.8 and 7. Like, I hear different reports everywhere um, for magnitude. But it, I think most people would consider it a fairly minor quake. Like, everybody was kind of okay afterwards and we didn't have long lasting infrastructure issues and still it cost like nine billion dollars in recovery costs and we're still doing things today to kind of like address those lessons learned from that earthquake like finally replacing the viaduct all these many years later Uh, and the last one is a subduction zone aka the the mega thrust the North American plate and the um, San Juan de Fuca plates from California. So basically, if this happens, it's it's not just us involved. It's uh, most of California and up to uh, British Columbia. Yeah, this is our opportunity in this episode to give a little shout out to Portland, Vancouver, BC. Like you're coming down with us. <laughs> We're not going alone. 
So for the the three, so actually the crustal, which is like the most shallow one, is actually the worst for us because it shakes the most at the radius, which normally would be okay, except we built the city at the very center. So we'll be shaking the most here. So that could actually cause, I mean, about the same amount of damage as the subduction zone one. But the subduction zone one, it's, it's regional, whereas for us, it would just be basically our immediate area. With those kind of earthquakes also comes the opportunity for us to have a lot of secondary hazards. And, you know, we'll get into the how to survive the earthquake part. Um, But the one I always really try to get people to look at is like, you will probably survive the earthquake. It's all the stuff that comes afterwards that I want to make sure you survive as well. And like we talked about our worst case scenario, like, yeah, worst, worst case, it's, it's triggering volcanoes. Those volcanoes are creating lahars, like where you know, the volcanic material comes rushing down the rivers. And that's like... That's That's a fun thought exercise. Yeah, that's a thought exercise and it's horrible. But there are some likely like secondary impacts after Mm -hmm. an earthquake. The first one being aftershocks. Like you unfortunately never get to be like, oh, what a horrible earthquake. Glad that's over. (laughs) No, you don't. The earthquake will... There's so many secondary effects that could happen. So we're going to go through a couple of them, which is the tsunami, which is somewhat likely. Liquefaction, very, very likely. A volcano, which is... I'm going to say, let's not worry about that risk too much because that's terrifying. Okay. And as well, that's also like mostly Tacoma. Sorry, Tacoma. Yeah. Like, Lahar also mostly Tacoma. You guys really have it hard. Tacoma, don't, you know... I don't know what to say to you. Just, I'm sorry. That's such a good example, though, of how a risk in one place can be so significantly different than another place, even though they're actually really close together. So, like, a lot of what puts Seattle at risk, um, I mean, we have some geographic issues. We have just, like, unfortunately, we're built Mm -hmm. on this fault line. But we also, like, have made a lot of bad infrastructure decisions. 35 miles south of us is Tacoma, and, like, most of their risk just comes from being, like, really in a treacherous natural disaster zone. (laughs) And we're so close together, you don't think of it as like, we're experiencing wildly different things, but we would be. But we, yeah, all of, a lot of our problems come from our bad decisions, whereas most of theirs just come from bad luck. But let's like talk about tsunamis and stages. So uh, first I'd like to distinguish between the two. So a tsunami is obviously, you know, a large wave or a series of waves over a period of time. And they're mostly horizontal. They come in from, um, like, the ocean, and they're terrifying. We all kind of know what they are. Sages are tsunamis in still water um, situations. So that would be your, like, Washington. Um, and, and they are more vertical. And so they, they also do not last as long. So they will they will hit you, um, but they won't hit you for as long. Um but they will hit you hard because they are vertical. So the thing is about tsunamis is we are not as much of, at risk of a tsunami as people might lead you to believe. It would have to hit at a very specific way, at a very specific speed, at a very specific time to actually – because we have Elliott Bay and that kind of protects us. Yeah, thanks to Elliott Bay, thanks to Puget Sound, like tsunamis not the greatest risk here. Yes. But SAGE is a very likely risk, which people don't really think about, which is it's in Lake Washington. And – basically it's it's you know if you imagine like a tempest in a teacup that's basically what we're looking at only it's you know the islands and bellevue and you know the whole area around like washington the best- oh and south south lake union is much, much more treacherous for them 
Um, the best visualization I've ever had of Sage is like imagine carrying a very full bowl of water across a room and the way that water starts to like build momentum and slosh up the sides. You take a very large body of water like Lake Union or like Lake Washington and you start like adding some heavy shaking and they're going to do the same kind of thing. Yeah. Those are the risks or that's what nature can do to us. Can we move to, like, how we made this worse? Yes, is because it, it, Seattle is exceptional at making it worse. Like, it's it's actually shocking how good we are at making things worse. Like, if you had to give a bunch of people a directive to make a city as hazardous as possible, they probably wouldn't be as successful as it as we were just by happenstance. When we talk about, like, what's dangerous in Seattle, we're mostly talking about, like, the downtown core – like, downtown is separated from, like, what we'd consider North Seattle by a ship canal that was dug in to connect the lakes to Puget Sound. North Seattle is mostly on bedrock. It isn't as built mm-hmm. out. It's mostly neighborhoods. Downtown Seattle <laughs> is surrounded by water on three sides. It is incredibly densely developed with tall buildings. And it used to be, it's still very hilly, but it used to be more hilly than we see today. How would you talk about the soil of downtown Seattle? Well, I'd say that most of the soil of downtown Seattle used to be somewhere else. (laughs) So a little bit of history about Seattle. That Seattle downtown, if you if you are there now, it's full of hills. Like you you're you're driving up and down hills like the whole time. But it, it didn't always used to be like that. It used to be relatively flat and then there were it was built on seven hills by the water. Um but after after like flooding issues and different situations, the people decided they would shave down one of the hills, which is where the, the Denny regrade is. And they so they took all the dirt from that and they just like shoved it into the bay. Yeah, they created the more city. Some of it went to Harbor Island, with, and the rest of it was landfill. So like Harbor Island is all landfill and random dirt, and uh, built a lot of built a lot of hills like by the water immediately that weren't there. And so what what we have is a a city that is not actually built on bedrock. It's built on loose fill and landfill, and. Have you ever seen the pictures of downtown Seattle when they were doing that regrade work? I actually haven't. It's amazing because they went through and they, like, bought land from people who were living there. And they're like, we're going to get rid of this hill. Like, we'll pay you and you can just go ahead and leave. And some people were like, great, here's – I'll take my money. You can have my house. Tear it down. Tear down your hill. And some people were like, absolutely not. I would be that person. Yeah. No, this is my house. You can't do anything about it. And instead of being like, this is a bad idea. Let's not do this. They just removed all the rest of the land. So, like, <laughs> people still had their house and they still had their property. And then they had a huge drop down to where they had regraded the Did hill. Did they just have, like, a huge ladder? I mean, I assume at some point they just sold their house because what option did they have? I mean, that's the most typical and expected Seattle passive-aggressive move ever. They're like, oh, yeah. Like, you don't want to sell? I completely get that. I respect that. Yeah, they won't talk you into it. They won't push you about it. They'll just quietly steal all the land from around your property. <laughs> They're like, here, we, we even got you, like, a ladder, like a throw ladder that you can throw down so you can go up and down. This is fine. It's the icy like, breeze of the Seattle freeze. <laughs> <laughs> I 
kind of love that, and I also completely expect that. Um, which I think leads us to another thing of how we made this work, which let's talk about the Seattle freeze. The Seattle freeze is a term that Seattleites um, take very personally. So I I know immediately they're going to tell me I'm wrong, that I haven't lived here long enough, and like I'm an outsider. Um, but the Seattle freeze is this term we have for the people of Seattle not exactly being unfriendly. They're very kind. They're mm-hmm. friendly in that general, like, hold the door open for each other, like, polite hellos kind of way. But they don't engage new people very well. It takes a long time for them to, like, warm up to new people and really, like, engage in the community. And that has is really reflected in the fact that, like, we don't know our neighbors super well and we aren't, like – building a lot of new relationships or like when I first moved to Seattle and people are asking me like oh are you making a lot of new friends I was like people are here are very nice but I feel like there's just like this common theme of like thanks but I have enough friends yeah it, no it's it's a thing and I, I noticed it too and I've I've lived in a lot of different cities um like I moved I think eight times in like 10 and eight years at one point and it's it's not necessarily a problem, except there's also this thing where they if you move to a new neighborhood, you might not say hello to them. Like I I threw a house ring party, and I can see you shaking your head. It's super weird. No, this isn't weird, and that's this is what I'm saying. This is the problem. So, she threw a housewarming party where she invited her new neighbors, like actual strangers, into her home. I'm I'm from the Northwest. That's very weird. I don't think that's weird. Like, how else are you going to meet your neighbors? Like, they're only going to be strangers until they come to your party, and then they'll be your friends. Which, by the way, worked out for me. Because all, like, of those people, I've had several people that I didn't know come to my house party, and I'm still friends with them. I still hang out with them. I go to their Thanksgiving every year. So there you go. So the phrase is... An example of how we made things worse. And what does that actually mean? And I think this is a really good time for Mm -hmm. me to share with you. I was talking to a friend who had listened to our Houston episode. And I was asking her, like, how the content went for her and all that. And she was like, yeah, but I just don't think you can use the spirit of the Texan people as a benefit when it comes to surviving a hurricane. Wrong. And that's <laughs> that's obviously <laughs> what I told her. And, and, like, we're now on the exact opposite end of the spectrum that we're seeing, like, our – Our unlikeliness, so not unwillingness, it's not that we're like bad, Mm -hmm. unfriendly people, but it's our unlikeliness to engage in our community that actually it really is a weakness for us. Like if you're a community-focused people, if every day you're engaging with your neighbors and you know what's happening with them, when a natural disaster strikes, you're more likely to know who's going to need help, who has resources, who you might be able to ask for help from. And you're not going to feel like weird asking for that help because, you know, you've ever spoken to them before. Um, in emergency management, we always like talk about how you you don't want to be exchanging business cards in a disaster zone. You want to know who you're going to need help from and support from before an event happens. Then you can just go straight into like responding to the event. Yeah, social isolation is is a very treacherous and terrifying thing for for societies and it's something that's a it's a growing problem um that is prevailing throughout our entire society but it's especially problematic here people don't know their neighbors and i know i sound like an old like grumpy person like they don't know their neighbors anymore but that's actually a problem you know because it's not like about a cup of sugar it's about you know whenever something goes wrong like 
if you know that there's an elderly person down the street, like, don't you want to go make sure that they're okay and that a bookcase didn't, like, fall on them? That kind of situation. Also, you know, it just in terms of basic things, it's good to know your neighbors just for life. Like, what if your neighbor is a serial killer, right? Which in Seattle, there's a <laughs> lot of serial killers. The thing is, uh, is that, like, if you— It's not untrue. If you had met them beforehand, you would have that creepy vibe. But in an emergency situation, you might not have that ability to, to figure that out. Like, and in any case, that information is good information to have. The more you know about a person, the more you humanize them, too, and can, mm-hmm. like, relate to them and you remember them. Like, when one of the things they tell you is if you're ever kidnapped, if you're ever held at gunpoint, tell them a lot of personal facts about yourself because it humanizes you so much. It makes it a lot harder for them to like hurt or kill you. The difference in like your emotional connection to someone when you start to really know facts about them is significant. And, you know, if I am not found after an earthquake, I want my neighbors to know enough about me to at least be like, you think Megan's dead? And they're like, yeah, the witch is gone. <laughs> um. Yeah, that's the thing, too, is, like, also, if you don't know your neighbors, you might feel weird about breaking down their door to make sure that they're okay. Or to take their canned goods. Or to take all their canned goods. Take that, Susan. And their scented candles that I've been very jealous of. But um, that's the thing is, like, if if they're your friends and you haven't heard from them, you wouldn't feel as much for Tissy and be like, okay, like, I want them to, like, I'm going to kick down this door. She might not be in there, but I'm going to make damn sure before I leave. If you're stuck under a bookcase, like, you want someone to kick down that door. And make sure they get, like, drag you out. A social cohesion thing. Yeah. So we built ourselves a bad um, emotional support system on top of our bad infrastructure system. You know, we mm-hmm. we have the city. Like I said, it's separated by the ship canal, which means it's bridge heavy. We're separated from downtown Seattle by bridges. Oh, let's talk about all these bridges. Let's. 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 Let's talk about these bridges that connect our entire city that are, for the most part, past their life cycle date. They've been retrofitted, but retrofitted to stand to give you enough time to get off of the bridges. Not not, not enough, like, retrofitting for them to actually withstand an earthquake. Well, and one thing to um, realize about, like, this megathrust quake, there's two things to really think about. One, our infrastructure has been built or retrofitted to meet these earthquake standards, Mm -hmm. but that is a stronger amount of shaking for a longer amount of time. So if you think about, like, putting your phone in the middle of a table and you start shaking it, it might, like, start to shift towards the edge, but it's not going to fall off. But if you shake and you shake and you shake and you shake, eventually it's going to make its way to the edge and fall off. And so that's, like, a way of looking at the fact, yeah, we've built infrastructure to withstand a certain level of shaking for a certain amount of time, but when we're talking about earthquakes that could potentially last minutes, that really changes the formula of whether your infrastructure is going to stand. The other piece of that is, okay, even if the bridges are fine, it is the state's policy. They all close. They need to be inspected before cars can start going over them again. So we have this earthquake and everybody's able to get off the bridge and that's great. But no, you're fully cut off from moving south in any way without first going up and around Lake Washington. And that gives you kind of a single point of exit if you need to get south of the city. So whenever we, before we didn't really understand, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, how much at risk we were for earthquakes. And whenever we finally, like, actually did the research, wait a minute, like, something happened, like, 1700, something bad happened, like, you can see it in, like, the rings of the trees, we're not quite sure what. And 
it was interesting because they were able to pinpoint it exactly because in Japan, there had been a random tsunami that hit them in the um, early winter of two thousand of 1701. And they were like, where did the tsunami come from? And it was like a mystery that they had. And um, it was it was our tsunami because it was our earthquake. Whenever the Fukushima earthquake happened, there was actually an earthquake convention with all the earthquake specialists in Japan at that moment. And so there was an earthquake. And at first, they were all laughing because they were like, oh, of course, there's an earthquake whenever we're here. Like, how wonderful for us. Because, you know, they're like us. Oh, like, it's what we, we prepare for our whole lives. But then it was like one minute, two minutes, three minutes, and then four minutes. And then at the, at the end of it, whenever the earthquake finally ended, they all like looked at each other and they're like, oh, this is terrible. Because a four-minute earthquake is nothing they'd ever prepared for, like something that long. And that, and we all know what happened after that, the earthquake, tsunami, nuclear. Yeah, perhaps. No, our, our bridges are old. Our, infa- our infrastructure is mm-hmm. old, okay? This city is... It, we have Pioneer Square, which is unreinforced ma- stone masonry. Um, they've been there have been a lot of movements to improve that, but the stone facade of some of our buildings, the brick facade, isn't affixed to the rest of the building. So when the shaking starts, it has a tendency, as we saw in Nisqually, to come tumbling down on whoever happens to be standing outside. That whole land is that fill we talked about. So that becomes a liquefaction zone. And liquefaction really just means like this land that wasn't naturally there, that was put there by people to kind of expand out and build out our city, isn't as like deeply packed as land that naturally formed there. And when that shaking starts, the spaces between like the dirt particles space out. And here comes... Well, Elliott Bay in between and turns essentially what was what you thought you were standing on solid ground into into quicksand. Yeah. So liquefaction zone is a lot of our Elliott Bay. That's our Harbor Island. That's actually a lot of the University Village area, a lot of the area around downtown and most of Inner Bay. And so, I mean, that's a good amount of the city that's in a liquefaction zone. And then, obviously, like, associated with that are all the landslide zones um, that are, like, up on the hills. And, and this is all related to soil. And so the density of the soil, the type of soil, if it's on bedrock, if it's not on bedrock. And really, if you think about it, like, a very concentrated small area. Because liquefaction is very much concentrated on that downtown area, the University of Washington um, area just north of the Ship Canal and um, the south end of downtown. And there's also, in the liquefaction zones, there's 23 sites with hazardous materials on there. So we're not just talking about quicksand. We're talking about the quicksand that might have hazardous materials mixed in. Ooh. Ooh. Could we have a toxic tsunami, too? Toxic sage? To have a toxic sage? Yeah, not just Houston or, gets to have a toxic tsunami. Wait, wait how about a toxic, like, like quicksand? Ooh, Ooh, toxic liquefaction. We actually sound happy about this. That's maybe not good. So we have this horrible earthquake coming. Yeah. There's no way to survive, right? I mean, is there no way to survive? Like, maybe for other people. Yeah. I actually tell people this all the time when I try to get them to build their preparedness kits. Unfortunately, you probably will survive. How we survive in Seattle. So we clearly know that we have this big, huge earthquake. And yet we aren't prepared. Um, There's this program through American Red Cross called 
prepare out loud. And their whole thing is like, get prepared, tell everybody you're doing it, emphasize to people that there's a cultural expectation to get prepared. But their big thing when they're really pushing this, I had the guy who runs the program, I listened to a talk, he gave a TED talk. And he was saying, never in human history have we known so much about a threat and done so little. And I see that all the time working in emergency management that I see people who say, it's never going to happen. They poo-poo the whole idea altogether. And then they're like, if it happens, it's not going to be that bad. We all lived through Nisqually and that was nothing. And if it's as bad as they say it's going to be, well, I'm, I died anyway. And I'm always like, unfortunately, you're probably going to survive. You know, we maybe don't have the best infrastructure for having a good economy afterwards, but unfortunately, you'll probably still be here and you're going to need to make it through what could be weeks before you can get like the same service levels again. Yeah. So I, I've actually been thinking a lot about this. And so it's actually interesting. There's this economic study and they call it like the ostrich effect where they were testing what people's ability is for bad news. So the thing is like the more information, like the better, right? Like that's, that's in theory, in theory. But whenever it came down to it, they were realizing that people, if they were like, if the stocks were doing bad or something, like people just wouldn't check their stocks or things like that, which you would think they would do, but they didn't. And so for this study, what they did is they took all these like college students, these poor college students, <laughs> they like gave them options to take their blood. And like you could also pay your way out of, the, out of having your blood taken. So some people did that. But the majority of the people allowed to have their blood taken. And then the end after the blood was taken, they said, okay, so we have your blood now, and we will test you for free for HPV, which is a STD. And if you get these results, only you will ever know about these results. Nobody else will ever know. So it's only you that knows, and it's totally free. And we've already taken your blood, so you don't have to do anything. But if you don't want this test, you just take your vial of blood and dump it down the sink yourself. And 30% of these college students decided to dump their own blood down the sink rather than know this information, which is, if you think about it, it's shocking. Like, this information, like, no matter what, like, it, it, it is it or, or it isn't, right? Like, you either have it or you don't. And it doesn't really change the fact if you dump the blood down the drain or you don't, except you know about it or you don't. Yeah, just knowing something bad is so stressful for people. Like the idea is so horrible that they just would rather not know than like deal with the knowledge. Yeah. And so they were like 30%, which is a crazy amount. And so I feel like whenever it comes to people, a lot of times you're like, well, I don't I don't want to think about this. And so they just don't. And and I think whenever it comes to especially like in today's society, which like I'm just going to go on like a little detour. But there is like this positive thinking wave of uh, in people where like it's bad to have negative thoughts. And so people are like, you're so dark. How can you think about the end like of an earthquake? We're not dark people. This is just what we do for a living. This is just a thing that could happen. It's like wearing a seatbelt. Like you just can do little things to prepare for it. But people just don't want to hear it. Yeah, I get people all the time who are like, oh, I couldn't do your job. I couldn't think about such sad stuff all the time. And it usually makes people laugh because I'm like pure chipper at work. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just like, oh, yeah, that girl, the sad girl. <laughs> I know it's funny because like we're pretty like happy-go-lucky people, I feel like. We're happy people because we're prepared people. Exactly. Yeah. Like it's funny because I've had meetings before. Oh, it made me so mad. I don't know if I told you this. But like I had a meeting. And the person was like, you know, 
don't worry. Like, it's going to be okay. Like, you'll be okay if this happens. And I, and I was, like, looking at this guy. And I was like, are you serious right now? Like, I might have the voice of Minnie Mouse, but my heart is Tupac and my preparation is MacGyver. I'm good. Like, I'm not worried about me. I, like, this is my job. My job is to worry and yeah. to prepare. Yeah, okay is not an accident. Okay is a plan you made. And we yeah. will be okay. Well, you and I, we're good. We're just trying to help other people. So it's not our paranoia here. It's just like there's there's things you can do to make things not terrible if something bad happens. So what do you do? What's in your survival bag? Oh, I'm so glad you asked me that because I have been waiting. So I've been thinking a lot about Seattle people and what they – normally have so people in seattle they love camping don't they i mean i do but i'm a big outdoors hiking person so so megan is actually maybe one of the crazier hikers that i know i appreciate that i i know you do i know like i can see the smile on your face (laughs) of how happy you are a lot of people here have good outdoors and camping gear yeah in hiking um we're really encouraged to carry like what's called the 10 essentials. And that really is like you always carry with you food, a source of water, um, a shelter of some kind, extra layers for warmth. And so like that preparedness mindset is like deeply ingrained with people who spend a lot of time in the outdoors. Who camp a lot, they should be okay. It's just they're in a city now and they have to get out of the city. Well, instead of driving to, you know, the woods to camp, you just waited for camping to come to you. Yeah, and you're, like, in your, like, slightly structurally unsound house, but, like, still okay. And then um, communication plans and maps. So this is basically, like, with your family that you've, like, had at least one conversation where you say, okay, so, like, if something happens, you call this person and they are out of state and you have your kids memorize a phone number. It's good for their memory retention anyway. You did mention that it's an out-of-state contact, and I think that's, like, a good point to emphasize because – We saw this actually in Seattle after Nisqually. It was very hard for people to call phone numbers that were local or even for a more recent example, anybody who went to the parade to celebrate the Seahawks Super Bowl. Is that when it happened? Like they were downtown and they had the opportunity to experience what it's like to have a bunch of people trying to use the same cell phone bandwidth at once. And no one could get a call out, a text out. They couldn't post the pictures of Marshawn Lynch on their Facebook page at that moment because so much demand of those towers was happening at once. And they just, like, nothing would go through. And so if you have that out-of-area contact, it's actually a lot easier to get a text message. It's easier to get a text message in general than a phone call because it will continue Mm -hmm. to try to ping the tower and get through. But it's much, much easier to reach an outside-of-area contact because they're using their own local towers. And so you have less stress on the local infrastructure. You know, they say in emergency situations that 75% of the people freeze and 10% of the people are completely useless because they just freak out. The 15% actually are able to do something and survive the situation. And those 15%, the thing they have in common is they've thought through the situation before. And so just thinking about the scenario just once or twice before and thinking what you would do in the scenario can be the difference in your reaction time that could actually really protect you and your family, and everyone else that you know. So it's important to kind of really focus and and just 
think about it. Just spend like, you know, if you're on your commute, spend 20 minutes thinking, how would I get out of the situation if something should happen? Um, but also in my survival bag, besides all the plans, is a thermal blanket. You know how I love my thermal blankets. <laughs> Megan's a big proponent of having a thermal blanket on you at all times. I'm not joking about that. I have one in my car. I have one in my house. I should put one in my purse, actually. I think I'm going to work on that. I have about 14 in my hiking bag and nowhere else, so I probably should have a, a geographic distribution You need of to diversify that. <laughs> diversify your, your thermal blankets. Um, they're like $10, everyone. Get one. So nice. Um, I would get like a Life Straw water bottle or iodine tablets. Iodine tablets are like $6.00. Somewhere on there. And then Life Straw water bottles are not much more expensive. Um, Soylent, in case you need food. It's it's powdered food. Um, I always have a tactical pen, uh, which is <laughs> it's a pen that can break through windshields. So if you're on a bridge and the bridge collapses under you, you can break out. But also, it's just good for breaking things, which, you know, in an emergency situation, you might need to do. So both for rioting and escape purposes. I mean, looting is important after any situation. <laughs> um, I also have scalpel because you just you might have to cut through things and scalpels are super sharp. And then I also have goggles and a bicycle helmet. Like, here's the thing is like these all have to fit into a bag. So you have to like choose wisely. So I probably won't include the bicycle helmet. That's only if I'm running out of the door and I might as well just grab my bicycle helmets. Goggles are something, something you should definitely have because there'll be debris in the air. There'll probably be smoke everywhere. So goggles are a good way to protect your eyes. So you're able to like see and have like visuals as you're trying to leave the city. Duct tape, tarp, rope. These are actually all the things you need to like dispose of a body but there are also very useful things to have in your car in case of emergency for protection for you know sealing up entrances and see this is just proof that like you're never buying anything for your emergency kit that's useless because it's just in case of an earthquake if you've got a body to hide you've got the stuff exactly like dual usage (laughs) and then a solar charger for your phone uh which I mean, everybody needs their cell phone, so having a solar charger will save you endless amounts of grief as you try to contact people. Contact, or, contact people. You know, if you can't live without Candy Crush for more than a few hours. I hope that's not what you're using your solar charger for. What a waste of data in that kind of situation. I mean, there's endless sun during <laughs> the day. <laughs> so... My survival bag looks very similar to yours, um, but I've really built mine with this expectation that I'm looking at two weeks before really I'm going to get any opportunity for services. And um, two weeks is the recommendation they give these days. And that, I know it can sound so daunting. Like, Can I interrupt for just a minute? There was a new report that was just released um, where they said that For most Seattle citizens, 70% could not expect to get their water back for the first – it'll take a month to get their water back for 70% of the people. And then two months for water to get back for everyone. So now we're talking about even worse than two weeks. So you've made it even more daunting, and I was trying to relieve people of their fears. We should not do that. We should make people face reality. Also, that's why you need to get, like, good water purification systems. Yeah, it is a good idea to – to think about water filtration and purification because we do have some water sources. We have lakes. We have rivers. And while that's maybe not ideal, 
the idea of trying to store in your house somewhere, you know, two months worth of water for you and your whole family. That's a gallon of water per person per day. Think about your pets, too. That's there, Nobody has space for that. We all have tiny places because the cost of living in Seattle is insane. Any time you can buy yourself, if you can only buy yourself three days that all of your needs are taken care of and you can think about what your next steps are and you can find out what the resources available to you are, that's going to make a really big difference in the quality of life you have after a disaster. So, but I've, I've very much built my plan with the idea that I'm going to be sheltering in place in my home. So, mm-hmm. you know, having enough food and water is obviously essential to living. And then... um you know, you've got goggles and I've got shoes and gloves. I tuck my shoes, like heavy duty bottoms under my bed so that, you know, if there's broken glass, if we have an earthquake at night, gloves are really essential for moving debris out of your way. When we talk about like, don't go ahead and get yourself killed after the earthquake, after you survived, we really mean like, take care of your basic needs and then don't just run around doing stupid things like drinking unfiltered water and moving rusty metal without gloves. You know, want that situation actually whenever i was working downtown i was working at a government organization and they gave us like little bags to keep under our desks and we were like oh like escape bags how cute and then they pulled out i pulled out gloves what are these gloves for and they're like they're tunneling gloves you can tunnel out of the building and i was like wait because <laughs> in all of my visualizations i had never imagined that a scenario in which i'd have to tunnel my way out of the building you didn't see like post-earthquake you shawshanking your way out with a spoon <laughs> no. and these tunneling gloves and i just they looked at me and i looked at them and i knew in my heart that i would just give up because i don't have that kind of strength i'm not six foot four i don't have lots of muscles i have no muscles how would i ever tunnel my way out you know, maybe I could manage for like 12 hours to like hit a spoon against like a pipe to like get help. But like that's as far as I could do. I don't know, though. Oh, Megan just handed the gloves back and said, no, thanks. I'll ra- I'd rather die. Uh, well, just like th- these would be wasted on me because I'm just someone who could actually use them. So speaking of how we would survive in the moment. Yeah. You got to survive the earthquake for your earthquake kit to matter at all. So as much as we're like, yay, please build an earthquake kit and you probably won't die, you probably won't die assuming you don't do something super stupid. Like using the elevator. Like running outside in the middle of an earthquake. Why do people do that? Power lines start falling. If you're inside when an earthquake takes place, stop, drop under a piece of furniture like a table or a desk, and hold on to that piece of furniture. So you don't want to, like, get yourself nice and curled up and cover your head under a desk just to have that desk, like, rattle away with the shaking. You want to hold it above you, and that's what's going to protect you from falling items, ceiling tiles, that sort of thing. In the U.S., our building standards are very good. Most of the injuries people incur during earthquakes in buildings are not because of building collapse. They're actually because of, like, unsecured furniture, ceiling tiles, light fixtures, that sort of thing. So they're getting hit by the things that we, like, brought into our homes to, like, make them more usable to us. Speaking to that, so, like, if you're at home, if it's in the middle of the night, you know, you have pillows. Utilize those pillows. Those pillows are not... I mean, they're good for sleeping, but they're also good for protecting you from damage and all those things, you know, like use them as a buffer. Or hopefully it's like every other earthquake I've experienced in my life and I just sleep right through the whole thing. Are you serious? Oh, yeah. I've only been through one earthquake and I woke up. 
but it was in LA. If you're outside though, so if you're driving or if you're like just even walking and it starts, there's an earthquake, just try to move away from as many hazards as you can. That can be very difficult in a city because you're in a city full of hazards. You're surrounded by hazards. You've got glass above you. You've got power lines. You've got people driving wildly. You shouldn't go out into the middle of the street. That's how you get like hit by like a million things. Like run into like in like the little like like the awning of a building or something. Like get somewhere with shelter. Um, because once again, as we said, those buildings are built well, so they will stand. And you'll be safer in the awning of a building than you will in the middle of the streets. Depends on the age of the awning. <laughs> well, like Ideally, I, you'd be in a big field, but that's I, not really an option in downtown Seattle. <laughs> that's true. I mean, in your, in your perfect situation for an earthquake, you're in the middle of an empty field surrounded by, like, marigolds. Oh, yeah, just laying on your back, like, yeah. counting the birds going and by. And you're like, oh, look, everything's, like, moving, like, with me, and I'm one with nature. There are fires setting everywhere, and you're just like, that cloud looks like a bird. <laughs> that sounds, well, that looks really terrible from so far away, but here, like, it's beautiful. The, the smoke is all, like, orangey-red, <laughs> like my aura. I don't know. If I'm trying to channel what a hippie would do, but I don't know what hippies do. If you're driving, stop driving. <laughs> Yeah. Like, pull over safely, put the car in park, stay in the car, ride it out in your vehicle. When the shaking's done, if roadways look clear, if you're not on a bridge. If you're on a bridge, and this is my worst nightmare, so I think about it all the time. And by all the time, I mean every time I cross a bridge, which in Seattle is like five or six times a day. Um, so if there's if you're on a bridge, put down your windows um, or open up your moonroof, whatever you have. Keep your tactical pen in the driver console just in case so you can break out. Just be prepared to leave your car if it falls into the water. And then get the hell off that bridge. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Don't you dare drive over that bridge if you're like, oh, I had to get home, but, like, there's an earthquake. Let me just drive over the bridge. Don't do it. Don't be that person. And if you are, like, that's on you. And we warned you, and I have no empathy for you whatsoever. The hard thing about earthquakes is that, okay, a hurricane comes in and blows really hard and a bunch of rain falls and then it goes away and you know the storm is over. You might be still dealing with the impact of that flooding. You're starting to rebuild, but it's over. You don't know that an earthquake is over. The shaking may stop, but aftershocks are highly likely for sometimes months even maybe even years after the event happens. You can be having severe aftershocks that sometimes even match the strength of the aftershock or um, the original shock, yeah. <laughs> the earthquake itself. And so... You're never really safe. Yeah, you you can't just be like, oh, great, I'm safe, and like go about your business. You're going to have to kind of be aware of what might come for you. But, Megan, how do we make this better? Like, how, how could we... Isn't in- like infrastructure-wise, make this better? So from an infrastructure position, we need to make sure that, well, that one, that we're not lying to, that you're going to survive this earthquake. And a big part of that is retrofitting the buildings we have. We want to make sure that if we have these old buildings, and Seattle has some very old buildings, um, like I talked about those ones that have these brick facades, that they've actually been retrofitted to stand up to our earthquake standards. And that's something that um, Nisqually really 
shook the legislature here. I mean, literally the dome at the Capitol cracked. (laughs) (laughs) But it really made them, like, think about what we should be doing. And they put a lot of funding into retrofit projects just to have the recession in 2008 kill the state's budget. And a lot of the projects that they had implemented them, we saw them in downtown Seattle. We saw it at University of Washington where they were doing Restore the Core. Those projects just ceased when the money uh, dried up. And so some buildings got retrofitted and some that we know are extremely dangerous, there haven't been the fun sense to go out and do anything with them. And so talking to policymakers and making sure they know this is top of mind for you because with the Nisqually quake no longer being like, just a couple of years ago and wasn't that terrible, but now being... Our codes are are worse than California or Alaska's. And granted, Alaska gets a lot more earthquakes than we do normally. But for, for California, we should at least be on par with them. Like, they have very few unreinforced masonry, brick mason buildings that we haven't, that they haven't retrofitted. And I think we have over a thousand. We have well over a thousand, yeah. Very strange that we, we haven't made more of an initiative out of this. Also, you know, Los Angeles just initiated their Shake Alert LA app, which notifies them if there's an earthquake coming because LA loves their citizens, apparently more than we love our citizens. Where where is our Shake Seattle app? That's what I want to know. What's incredibly ironic about that is Shake Alert is being worked on by researchers at the University of Washington. Oh, I know. Right here in Seattle. So it's an early earthquake detection. Um, It can warn people, um, I think, up to minutes. You know, you're probably going to get more like 30 seconds warning, but up to minutes of warning that an earthquake is coming. And the difference for people between like being on a ladder and not being on a ladder and already being under a table um the difference to surgeons in surgery the difference in knowing that an earthquake is coming and that you can get to a safe spot is just so significant and i it's only through like public pressure and like requests for this kind of system that we're going to be able to get the funding to put such a thing in place I think it can warn up to two minutes ahead of time. But even 30 seconds, that's all you need. Like, that's enough time for you to put your car in park and run off that bridge. Or start to run off that bridge. Just get off the bridge. Get off the bridge. And so that's something we should really be pressuring people for. Um, And by people, I mean our legislators. What? It's like we keep talking about policy and how important it is for infrastructure funding. I know. That's funding. so strange. I mean, it's just so strange that we, there's something that we could actually do in terms of government to help protect us. We've made a, a few things. So, I mean, the city of Seattle has given us this huge gift of getting rid of the godforsaken viaduct. We don't miss you. We don't miss you. We never loved you. You never loved us. You were this horrible thing like the you know that that story of the sword above the bed of like the king like he had to like he had everything in the land but he also had this sword like hanging above his head every single night as he fell asleep that's what the viaduct was for us and now it's gone yeah that took incredible political will and not everybody to this day not everybody is aligned for the replacement that was chosen for the viaduct but Getting rid of this infrastructure that was a known risk to people is such an essential piece of ensuring that we can minimize, like, economic losses, but more importantly, loss of life after an event, like an earthquake. We can't 
move our city. So Seattle's going to stay here. Um, Houston refused to move, even though we told them they shouldn't put a city there. And we told them two weeks ago, what have they been doing this whole time? I know, what have they been doing? But Seattle, they're not going to move. We're in a very beautiful place. It's one of those things where you put a city where there's good access to water and ports and it's actually very gorgeous and surrounded by mountains it just happens to be that those mountains are volcanoes and that water is extremely dangerous i know it's so pretty though we're so lured by pretty sights however we don't have to just live in a liquefaction zone um that's constantly at risk for severe earthquake damage so we had a seawall we built it in like 1916 until 1935 and we made it out of timber and then a couple years ago they were like Maybe that isn't the best idea, and they retrofitted it. Oh, wooden water? Wooden water? I mean, what could what could go wrong with that? They rebuilt it completely. They yeah. built it to be um, more friendly to marine life. They mm-hmm. built it to um, be easier to access after an earthquake, so they really thought through yeah. what our risks are. If you're ever down on the Seattle waterfront walking over the new seawall, you'll see there's glass bricks in the sidewalk. And that is actually because if the power is out – those glass bricks will allow light into the area between the seawall and the secondary seawall that protects downtown. And that way they can walk the area and check for any damage that happened to that earthquake with or without power. I'm a little bit biased because I used to work for the company that built it. But they're very good at their job. And they've done a they, the seawall they had is, is both adaptive to the changing environment. They took into consideration different climate change impacts that might happen. But it's also, it's built to really protect the city as it should. And they've... I, like, point out those bricks because it's such a great, like, creative concept for addressing a problem after an earthquake Mm -hmm. while still bringing, like, beauty to the city. You can build infrastructure that adds to the visual look of your city that isn't intrusive to everyday life there that... And then I have to say, like, for our infrastructure investments in Seattle in the future, it looks like we, we keep on focusing on this, like having more green infrastructure alternatives, which, as we spoke about in Houston, they are more resilient and they're more adaptive. And I think that that was a huge like point that they made whenever they were rebuilding this seawall. And so the good thing is we have a new seawall, so it's much less likely that we'll suffer like the horrible liquefaction that would occur if our seawall were to be breached in an earthquake and by about the all of downtown. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're going to survive. Hopefully your house has earthquake insurance. Yeah. Unfortunately, (laughs) you've survived. Now what? Now what? So speaking of your houses, so if you have have a house in Seattle and your building is a little bit older, pony strap your foundation. This is so important. And it doesn't cost much money. It's a retrofit option, but it's what's going to stop your house from jumping off the foundation and ending up who knows where. A crumpled mess in your front yard. You don't want that. You probably spend a bunch of money on your landscaping. Yeah, most people don't realize that houses in Seattle of a certain age, the the Sears catalog age, because yes. so many of the homes here were ordered from the I know, Sears catalog. Adorable? Amazing. But those homes were not affixed to those foundations. The foundations were created, the basements poured, houses slid right on top, balanced out on them. And then we moved on our merry way. But a significant amount of shaking, you can imagine, could shift a house off of that, like, 
neatly placed foundation. Some of my coworkers, they're like, well, I'm going to steal this boat and I will sail across this body of water in the case of an earthquake. And I can't fault them for it. It's a plan. I feel like we've gotten back to guns again somehow. No. This is how I'll steal my boat. I don't think it would be that hard to, like, hotwire a boat. I think they have less protections than, like, cars. (laughs) So Seattle's just full of, like, boat commandeering pirates. (laughs) Wouldn't that be the most fun, though? At least it's a plan, and that's all I really ask of people. That's all I ask. Like, I'm not. I'm not questioning the moral, like zoning of their plans. I'm not here to be a moral police of their survival plans. But like, don't like do anything too terrible, folks. Like steal a boat and a yachting hat. Steal a boat kindly. Wear a captain's hat when you're doing it. Wear captain's hat. Like make it and maybe play like Gilligan's Island as you fly as you drive away. <laughs> so that's Seattle. That's Seattle. Um, we want to give a big thank you to Jordan for being our sound guy. Hi, he, Jordan. He has a lot of patience for a, lot of, a lot of silliness. We have been drinking for a very long time today, and he has been here for all of it. Oh yeah, he's, <laughs> he's also to, drinking yeah. to, 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 to deal with us. Um, we want to thank Jake Tracy for our amazing theme song. Uh, he's a true musician. I told him I wanted those two songs mashed up, and within like an hour, he had them, and it's perfect. Thanks, Jake. Thanks, Jake. And then a big shout out to Nat, who uh, who takes my toddler so that his mom can talk about death and destruction. Yeah, he, it, he makes this happen for us. He does make it happen for us. He really wants to support you in this. This is your dream. Death and destruction, as is mine. That's why you and I get along. <laughs> There's nothing like the thrill of talking about how you're probably going to die in the city you have to live in every day. It's so fun, right? It like makes you like giddy. Every time I cross the bridge, like the like the Motley Bridge, I'm like, this could be. Every time you cross the bridge, you're like, not today, death. <laughs> live to die another day. Um, it's actually kind of amazing that other people are living their lives day to day, and every time we use infrastructure, we're like, yep, yeah, pretty much on the verge of death. Thank God we survived today. <laughs> people are like, oh, like this is just my normal day commuter. Yeah, people no think they aren't risk takers and then they drive across a bridge. 